This is Henry Lopez, and welcome to episode 18 of the How of Car Washing. We're going to break up this episode into two parts, and this episode is part one of David Begin's interview with Frank Kinder with the Colorado Springs Utilities. Next week on Wednesday, we will release part two, episode 19 of the interview. So now here's David Begin with his interview of Frank Kinder. Welcome to the How of Car Washing, the podcast that helps the car wash owner, operator, and manager address the challenges and opportunities associated with building and running automated car washes in today's fast-paced environment. And now, here are your hosts, David Begin and Henry Lopez. Welcome to this episode of the How of Car Washing. This is your host, David Begin, and today I've got Frank Kinder with me from Colorado Springs Utilities. Frank is a senior conservation specialist for the Water Services Division of Colorado Springs Utilities. His overall responsibilities include commercial indoor water conservation programs and rebates. He serves on a lot of local boards, and he serves on a lot of water boards and committees. His prior expertise includes sustainability planning for the U.S. Army at Fort Carson here in Colorado Springs, and he implements broad sustainable solutions such as energy, water conservation, land use planning, green build construction, and provides education and outreach and the implementation of ISO 14001 compliant uh, environmental management systems. He's organized and hosted and managed and presented at conferences nationwide, including the yearly Southern Colorado Sustainability Conference. And uh, Frank's got a master's degree in applied geology with an emphasis in sustainable development from the University of Colorado, Go Buffs and an undergraduate degree in finance and information technology, I'm assuming, from the University of Colorado as well. That's correct. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, well, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Frank was also uh, recognized here in Colorado Springs as one of, we have a 40 under 40 um, group of people for people that uh, have an impact in the community. How long ago was that? Uh, That was three good years ago. Okay. It was really nice. I think I got in just under the wire. Okay, good, good. That's that's good (laughs) to know. But thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate you doing that. um, You bet. You know, our friendship kind of developed over the last six or seven years, and I think it was back during a drought. I think he reached out to me. Uh, Colorado Springs was, or even the West Colorado was suffering from a drought. I'm going to say in the late 2000s. Do you remember the drought time? Right. We've had really two major droughts in Colorado from 2002 to 2005 and then 2012 and 13. But we were trying to develop some more drought uh strategies during the 2010 year going forward. Yeah, yeah. And you you reached out to me and you wanted to better understand car washing and what professional car washing did. So to kind of step back a little bit, tell us a little bit about Colorado Springs Utilities. How how large is it? Uh, What does it encompass? And um, maybe some of the uniqueness of what Colorado Springs Utilities offers. Absolutely. So Colorado Springs Utilities is the second, uh, it's the located in the second largest city in Colorado, which is about an hour south of Denver. And we're here along the Front Range. So we're uh, just east of the Rocky Mountains. And, and we're a city of just under 500,000 people. And so we have a municipally owned utilities, which is four services. And uh, we serve a couple of surrounding communities as well. So we do energy which is energy production and natural gas, water, and wastewater services. Relatively unique in the world of utility production to have all those four under one roof. So that, that doesn't happen very often. No, no. It's, uh, it's complicated in that you are managing those four services together under one brand, 
but there's a lot of efficiencies to be gained too, that you have one number to call, one group of representatives, and then you can gain some crossover expertise. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. So you've got power generation capabilities as well, so you do have some power plants? Right. We own two uh, coal-powered, uh, coal-fired power plants, you should say. One's downtown, a very old one from the 50s, and then another one just south of town from 1980. And then we actually have a couple of natural gas power plants as well. So that allows for using the best cost fuel at the right time and some switching opportunities for maintenance. And uh, we're, we're fortunate to have those because uh, they're under full ownership and full control, and we can do that pretty cost effectively. Okay, and, and, and that all, all translates in keeping the rates relatively reasonable. That's the goal, right, is yeah. re- rates, reliability, and relationships. So I get to know guys like you, Dave, and we yeah. get to have high reliability. We're very highly ranked across the country for our uptime. And uh, we have really competitive rates as well. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about this. I'm more curious now. When you say natural gas generation, natural gas comes from the ground. It comes through pipelines. What does that plant do um, when it comes to – is it the storage? Is it – it creates creates distribution? It creates gas pressure? I'd be curious to what what a natural gas – Uh, generation plant does. Right. So out here in Colorado, many of us are using natural gas to heat our homes. And so it's a relatively readily available fuel that is very cost effective through truly the cost of fracking uh, has has come down and it's uh, able to get us gas at a very low rate. And so a natural gas powered uh, fired power plant has a giant turbine. And so you kind of bring this gas in and you spin a big turbine and that spins a big generator and then you convert that to AC. And then that's sent around our community through the electric lines. Okay, it's, okay. It works just like a coal-powered plant does, but the difference is it's really, really efficient. It burns very clean. There's very little particulate matter. And you can store natural gas underground in big in big tubs too, so you have some ability to work uh, around the market variabilities. Okay, so very different than cold fired. Essentially, you have jet engines in that plant that's, that's right. uh, turning turbines. That's right, and these things they can be fired up in about seven minutes, and they uh, are very uh, low maintenance and and they're very quiet. So there's a lot of benefits to natural gas. So you have the flexibility, you know, depending on pricing, whether natural gas is more effective or coal will be more. I mean, coal is cheap. It, it remained cheap for a long time. I remember that uh, Colorado Springs had some long-term coal contracts, which uh, we were all able to take advantage of through lower pricing. That expired maybe two or three years ago, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, But, you know, coal is probably much cheaper, but, you know, being able to take advantage of pricing and natural gas gives you some flexibility, which plants and how much, how much generation power you're going to put online. Right, right. And natural gas, I believe, has been has been cheaper than coal for a couple of years now, at least in our region. We are a producer of, of natural gas in Colorado, up by the Greeley area, about two hours northeast is where we have a great deal of fracking. And so that's enabled us to get really competitive uh, contracts on some of these fuels. And, and when the prices change, we go back, but we try to stay on top of the market and we have uh, the ability to have really a fuel portfolio. So we also have around 10% renewables, which have come down considerably in cost too. And so we can use those during peak times. And what we do is manage all these fuel sources together, along with kind of the work that, uh, that my team does, which is demand side management. And together, we minimize the cost of fuel acquisition because that's really what you're paying for. Once you've got the capital investment done for the plant, then you're just paying for the people to run it and the fuel that you're burning, right? And so the benefit of having these mixtures is that you can use whatever's the lowest cost fuel. And then uh, if you've got a really good plant, then it's low cost to run. 
and then you can use some of the uh, supportive renewables as well for that immediate demand need. So do you have to buy energy off the market, or is Colorado Springs Utilities able to generate everything it needs? Uh, I think at this time what we have is additional capacity or excess capacity in our system. So we maintain contracts to buy fuel on the open market, excuse me, energy on the open market, so that if one of our plants goes down, we can get immediate uh, access. But for the most part, I believe we are buying it, we are use, We are making it a lot cheaper than the market provides. Uh, anytime you do that on the open market, they're going to add a multiplier to that so they can get a pretty decent margin just for that availability. So it gets, it gets expensive to buy, buy off the grid. It does. It does. And then do, do you sell electricity when you don't need it? Do you ever sell it to other utilities or put it on the grid? Well, all of Western, the, all of WAPA, what we call the Western Area Power Association, is connected. So the grid is, is kind of uh, flexible, if you will. The power that we produce that might not be used can be fed into the grid, and those contracts exist so that uh, you don't have to be starting and stopping plants all the time. And if there are moving demands in different areas, you can kind of share that load, and there's equity among the, the users and the buyers and the makers okay. so that you try to get price parity. Good, good. So I, I, the way I get charged for we'll talk about water here in a bit, but I just want to finish up with electricity. The way I get charged for electricity, because I'm considered to be an industrial user, and we, we did have an energy audit maybe three or four months ago uh, that came out, and they realized that we have such a small footprint from a building standpoint, but we're a high-energy user. So it was interesting for the audit guys to come out and see what we did, and they were, they were pretty amazed all the, you know, the amount of electricity that we use. But, but the way we get charged, at least in this part of the country, or we, the CSU is, we get charged based on a demand rate. So... The way it was explained to me is that when the tariff is, was created is Colorado Springs Utilities has to be able to provide me all the electricity I need at any given time. So although my consumption spikes and drops depending on the number of cars I'm washing that day, um, you need to be able to provide me as if I'm running you know, a 500 or 1,000 car day and all the motors are running all the time and I'm going full out. So you, your need to be able to provide me that is what kind of determines the rate. So in a demand rate, um, I think in, in Colorado Springs, they, they take 15 minutes worth of my de- the highest 15 minutes of my demand, and that becomes the rate that I get charged for that month or that billing period. And so, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. And when you start looking at utility bill, I mean, it takes a or PhD, I think, sometimes to figure out how that's calculated. But there's always a percentage efficiency uh, quotient that's created that tells me how efficient am I being with my utility rate or, or my demand rate. And because I can't control when people come, usually that in my business, it's relatively low. It's in the 20 to maybe 35 to 40 percent. So I'm not using it as efficiently. If I was a, a manufacturer and I could say, well, I'm going to create a shift at night because electricity rates are much lower at night than they are during the day. Then um, I might be able to get a better usage of my, you know, or a better percentage of my rate, uh, be able to squeeze more percentages mm-hmm, out of my rate, mm-hmm. I guess, is, is what I'm saying. So it, it's, it's unique. It's a unique issue to our industry, and, and it is what it is, but a lot of people don't don't understand it. Is that pretty common is, is the way – Colorado Springs Utilities creates a demand rate. Is that pretty common within the industry, or are there other ways? Well, this is slightly out of out of my area, but 
what I understand is it's like any business, we have to allocate enough supply capability for all potential demand for all of our customer classes. And so for someone like you, you've enabled your business to accommodate a certain number of maximum cars per day. And so in return, we have to provide the potential maximum amount of power you would demand. That's right. And so there is a fixed cost allocation to your bill to accommodate that. Right. So we would, we would ask you to support what we have invested to allow that, even though you might not hit that very frequently. So I think the, the ability for you to improve that is if you have a maximum demand rate that can be reduced through efficiency, then I would expect your demand rate to go down. I mean, those things change over time. I think there's an average over a period of months that is then reallocated and revisited each year. But for us, we have to do that for all these different customers. For example, we have, uh, take someone who might put on concerts. You know, much of the year they might not be having anybody in a ballroom, but then on an arena night when they've got a big rock band coming in, they meet, they might demand a thousand megawatts. So we have to have that power and distribution capability available for that three or four time event when the rest of the year it might be just a hundred megawatts. So that's what demand rate uh, accomplishes. And there is, there is an annoyance to that for some people because it is something that you have to pay for whether you're using it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, we're, and like I've, I've realized we're all in this together as consumers and as the person who's providing and it is our responsibility to make sure that that utilities have enough capacity and can provide the capacity when needed. And there's a massive amount of infrastructure that goes behind that, both for mm-hmm. electricity and for water. Um, so Colorado Springs Utilities is a is a private is a municipal owned utility. Tell us a little bit about that versus a privately held utility. Right. So so what that really means is this is a citizen owned entity. And so it's not owned by the city of Colorado Springs per se. It is a separate enterprise, uh, which means that it has to cover all of its own costs through uh, ratepayer dollars. It's not supported by taxes or any type of other allocation through income means. It's only through the bills that we charge and receive that we cover all costs for all um, property, all capital, all people, uh, pumps and pipes. And so that's relatively common in the water world. That was started as these small towns were uh, formed in the West. Many people wanted to have um, the ability to acquire local water resources. And for us, it was done by our city's founder, uh, I think right around um, the early 1900s. And the benefit it provides back then and still today is that there's no profit motive. So nobody's getting charged a margin of 7% and above or anything like that. Uh, The idea is that the investment goes to the local ownership and there's an access capability too, is whenever decisions are made for changing plants or expanding services, uh, you can go to the local people who are in charge of this municipal entity and uh, you can share your thoughts and, and voice your opinions and tell people what you'd like to see. So for us, we are governed by a utility board, which is also city council. And so those nine elected members have uh, overlapping terms, and they serve as the utility board to uh, give strategic direction on uh, where the organization goes. For the water entity itself, that's really common to have municipal ownership because there's really no profit in the sale of water. Uh, It's considered more of, uh, it's a very high capital intensive industry. 
there's very low cost for uh, the people compared to the pipes and products. It's very long-term investment. So you might have a water plant that's 100 years old, for example. But uh, even though the energy market has found a great deal of ownership privately, and uh, we, we haven't really found that that would be any more beneficial for our customers, when other people have come in to say, we would like to take over your assets or we've done a comparison, once that margin is introduced, uh, it's more expensive for the customers. And so we've had a great deal of community feedback indicating that they would like to keep municipal ownership in order to keep control of those prices and uh, how the programs are implemented. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that, that's such a benefit. We don't, we take fresh, clean water for granted in this country uh, to a tremendous extent. And uh, just to be able to turn on your water, get hot water or cold water, you know, for a lot of people in the world, that's that's not doable. So. It is amazing, you know, the infrastructure that goes into it. This episode of The How of Car Washing is sponsored by Focused Car Wash Solutions. Focused Car Wash Solutions is your complete guide to having a successful business in the car wash industry. Whether you are a new investor or a seasoned operator looking to make improvements, the experienced team at Focus can help you every step of the way. For more information, please go to focusedcarwash.com. A couple interesting things about CSU that I think locally, uh, maybe about a month ago, you pulled out the second oldest valve in the system over there by uh, right. by our bank uh, on Pikes Peak Avenue. So it was put in, installed in 1882, I think. That sounds right. Yeah. I mean, we're just a few blocks from essentially where the city was founded. Uh, General Palmer... Um, pounded a stake at a crossroads uh, just a just a couple blocks north of here, and so it's it's nice that we can still see the uh, examples of those earliest investments. And the and the funny thing is the the valve still works. Yeah, you know, here uh, that's uh, an ev- evidence of really good craftsmanship from back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they pulled that. It's going to go into the museum, I think, from what I understand, the utility museum. Mm-hmm. The other thing is uh, Nikolai Tesla Tesla. Um, the big inventor was uh, lived in Colorado Springs for about a couple years, I think, if I'm mistaken. And some of his experiments blew out the entire electricity system in Colorado Springs back. Was it the 1800s or the early 19? It might have been the early 1900s. But uh, you know, he was creating this wireless transmitter system, and he came to Colorado Springs. He installed it, and uh, one of his experiments sucked all the electricity out of the system and shut it down for a period of time. That's completely true. There's a great deal of really fun history between uh, Tesla and Edison. And there was competition in the world of who would gain which type of distribution format. Would it be alternating current or direct current? And so direct current actually offered a whole lot of benefits. Uh, There was really, like any business, some of it is pure marketing ahead of actually having a business available and getting buy-in from your potential customer base. And, and Tesla was a terrific inventor. He was an entrepreneur. He was very scientifically gifted. He was not a great businessman. Not a good businessman. And so I think that was part of his downfall is he was here. We have a great deal of thunderstorms in the summer. And so it's a great place to conduct electricity. We have wide open spaces and it's a very dry climate. So he was looking for a place where he could kind of expand the scale of some of his work. And, and sadly, I think much of the materials he had on site for his workshop are no longer available and, and that's a real loss for our community because what he did offer was the potential for uh, community access. He was even considering a way to make energy uh, free in a distribution system that didn't require 
any lines, any power lines. It would just be in through the air, and then you would have a, a kind of a collector item. There's a couple of great movies out there on him if you haven't learned much about Disney. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And yeah. I learned a lot about him that uh, it was a real battle between Westinghouse and Edison as far as whether direct current or alternating current was going to work out. Mm-hmm. I think direct current has a limitation as far as transmission is concerned. Right. And so alternating current probably won out. But that's all interesting. But we probably ought to get on to what you do. As far as your department, tell me what your department does. So you've got a special department within Colorado Springs Utilities. Right. So within the Water Services Division, we are the Water Conservation Department. And in in Colorado and the West in general, water is a scarce resource. Many of us might be from other parts of the country, myself from California, where generally water is a little more available. Uh, it might be just a few feet underground. Out here, water is from the mountains uh, to to the ocean. That's our source. And so there's not a lot of native water, what we would call locally available. And so uh, water conservation is a, a necessary component of living in the West. Uh, we don't have the freedom to be wasteful with our water. It's very expensive to develop. Uh, I can tell you that we would not be a city as large as we were had we not been able to plan the acquisition of water from up to 100 miles away and through 200 miles of pipe. And then we have multiple pump stations and reservoirs to store that water, and then we ship it here, and then we clean it, and then we distribute it to this town of just under 500,000 people. And so what we do in our department is help people use that water efficiently because each unit of water is incrementally more expensive to acquire. And so if we can be efficient with the water supplies we have, we don't have to go out and buy more. And as you can imagine, with so much growth, Colorado's the number one destination in the country right now, all the easy water is gone. There are not farms nearby in our region that have water available to sell. There's not uh, a river that we're on. Our peer cities, Denver, Fort Collins, even Boulder and Greeley, they have water that was either available through the South Platte, which is in Denver, or Bureau of Reclamation water. Federal projects help develop farming up north. Well, we don't have the same climate. We don't have the same soil. And so we didn't get that kind of early development Hence, we don't have the water supplies. So we had to do it on our own. It's, it's kind of very much a pioneer mentality. Our people went up to the mountains where there was a supply of water in the Rockies all along what you would call the collegiate peaks. So think of Vale and Leadville and Aspen, all those areas where uh, we were able to get some water and then we very carefully shipped it from the western slope to the, west, to the east slope. And once it's here, we try to be very uh, stewardship-minded of it. Yeah, yeah, it, it is very much a precious resource, and Colorado Springs did sort of figure this out. I think it was in the 40s and 50s when those people went out and did surveys on watersheds and said, okay, we can build a reservoir here to store water, and, and um, you know, it's still very contentious. Even in Colorado, there's a big battle between the eastern slope and the western slope because we do— uh, there is water that is taken from the western slope where there's not many people, and it's used in the eastern slope, and— uh, the people in the Western Slope don't particularly, they're not too happy about that. But, you know, these things have kind of come about over years and years and years. Um, but, yeah, it's very, you know, it's very, very important, very limited resource. And it you make a great point that it does make a difference in terms of our ability to, at least in our town, our ability to grow. Because if we don't have water, we're not going to be able to grow at all. So I, I know during the drought situation, there was a lot of talk about what we do and, and, um, you know, you folks have really done a great job of creating kind of a state, a drought stage process. 
Um, do you want to, can you describe that real quick? Is that something you can describe? Sure. So, so that complex water system we have, which, which actually takes about 80% of our water from the Colorado River. And so that water, Colorado River serves about 19 states and 40 plus million people around the West. And so that water that we, we receive, it comes through snowfall. It's first use water, and then we're able to capture it and divert it. But you can only store so much water. And so we tend to store two and a half years plus of water. And we feel pretty good about that buffer. You know, it's like having a savings account. But if you draw down that savings account, if there's a dry year, and, and, and we're in drought years that are, are periodic, uh, at, at this stage since around 2000, they've been longer and hotter. And so we really can't predict when drought occurs. But what we can do is prepare for it. And so by, by having strategies ready to go, when we start to see that there's very little snowfall and that we have a, a, a smaller amount of water available, what we'll, re- what we'll do is reach out to our customers. And we have some ways to talk with our residential customers and then our commercial folks like, like Dave. And so what we talk about is it, keeping a quality of life in Colorado. And Colorado Springs is a dry area by nature. We receive somewhere around 14 inches of, of water. Uh, it's a high desert area. And so we want to have a great city to live in, and we talk about how can we do that by keeping the water we have efficiently used and meeting all the services and demands of a functioning modern-day city. So we have methods to reach out to people and help them smartly water their landscapes, maybe not water in the middle of the day when it's going to evaporate. We talk about the newest technologies to do that at your house. And on the indoor side, we talk about very efficient water use, using water sense fixtures, your toilets, shower heads, faucets, and energy star appliances, and then using those things wisely, the behavior part of it. So for the business side, we do the same strategies. We'll talk about outdoor water use, making sure your landscape is well-managed, that your irrigation system is efficient, that it's using a smart controller so you're not watering when it rains, which drives people out here crazy, right? Yeah. And then we'll also talk about restaurants, using indoor water efficiently. Uh, we have a famous story about when it does have, when we are in a drought, we ask people to not give water automatically in restaurants. That's a visible thing that makes people aware of the water limitations that we have. So if we go into a drought situation, uh, we start to understand exactly how much water exists. So in the 2013 drought, we were under a year of available storage. And that makes our, our leadership pretty scared. You know, we, we want to talk about the, the most important uses of water, of course, are your hygiene and um, your consumption for uh, your health, right? So we want to be able to flush our toilets, take our showers, and drink water. Beyond that, things become a little more discretionary. And so we work into multiple stages of drought. When we go into uh, a situation like we had a couple of years ago, we have what they call a drought ordinance. And every major utility across the West that's of any size will have an ordinance. And the ordinance spells out exactly what steps are taken. And so for folks like Dave in the, in the washing industry here and yourselves on the phone, on, on, the, um, on the line, we, we will work with you. We don't want to stop watering. We just want to use water effectively and efficiently. Yeah, yeah. And so I remember, you know, we were all sitting in a room together with 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 commercial consumers talking about how much water we had left and we got down to maybe a year's worth or less than a year's worth storage. Yeah, we were le- less than and that had been the first time in a number of years that we were under those conditions. It was we were all kind of nervous like, "Oh my goodness, this is this is really happening. We never thought we'd get to that point." But, you know, you talk about droughts. I mean, I'm looking at the Weather Channel right now on TV and Florida's in a drought right now, the mm-hmm. southeast, the Atlanta had the same problem, and, and their car wash owners had the same issue. So 
we, we just talk about the West, but drought is now becoming a major uh, it is. issue across the nation. And we don't, you know, unless you're up in, I, I was in Chicago last week and I was on Lake Michigan seeing their big pumping stations, realizing they're never probably going to have a water problem up there. But if you don't have the Great Lakes, um, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have water, you know, you're going to have to think about your water and how you use your water. I think that's going to be some of the, the big, big challenges. Yep. Um, you know, we, one thing I want to say is the water quality is absolutely fantastic that we get here in Colorado Springs. And we've got a reverse osmosis system. Most people do have reverse osmosis in car washes. And our total dissolved solids coming in are anywhere between 30 units to 80 units. And other parts of the country, when they have to use well water or their sources aren't as clean, they're up in the two to 300 TDS and they're trying to get it down wow. to, you know, 80 or 30 so they can rinse with spot free water. But, you know, we, we have such great water to start with our water TDS going out is always zero, you know, and, and our, and our membranes last for years where if you were in Texas, for example, you might have to be changing your membranes out every year. So wow. great, you know, snow melt water is the best water quality, I think. Now you've tapped into another, uh, source, through Pueblo. So about 50 miles south of Colorado Springs, we have Pueblo, Colorado, and they've got a Pueblo Reservoir, which is a massive reservoir that's on the Arkansas River Channel, which starts up in Leadville, works its way down to Salida, and then comes starts going from uh, from west to east, stops in Pueblo at the reservoir, and then continues out the Arkansas. So right. that was a massive project. That was in the billions of dollars, I think. Well, it was planned. It was a 25-year project. We we do these these projects incrementally. So some might be small acquisitions of three four hundred acre feet from a small farm, but then at the same time you have to do bigger projects, which can be much more complex, much more costly, and take a long time. So this was envisioned as the next great water supply component of our system, and. When we began, like all cities in the West, we've been growing for decades. We've had our ups and downs, but we expected more people to want to come here. Uh, we're lucky to have a very great quality life in Colorado and Colorado Springs especially. So when, when SDS, which is what Dave refers to, Southern Delivery System, was envisioned, there's about a third of the city that's undeveloped on our east side. And uh, we have developed in, in relatively like a, a common suburban model, like many cities. And so we predicted that our existing water supply would eventually outrun our population. So SDS was envisioned as a way to capture the water that we already owned. Uh, this Pueblo Reservoir is a federally managed reservoir. And so, as you can imagine, there's a great deal of permitting and investment to these projects. You have to get access to the water. You have to get property access. And you have to do design and construction and engineering. And then you have to fund these projects, too. And then you have to start doing them in phases. And, of course, there's an environmental review to make sure that you're being smart with the land. And so for us, this was a, uh, it was envisioned to be over a billion dollars. Of course, we started it right around the Great Recession. And so we were really lucky that we got very favorable interest rates, terrific labor rates, and we also got um, good contract rates from a lot of people. In fact, the pipe for that project, this is about a 66-inch pipe that comes uh, from Pueblo North, was all made in Denver. And that company has let us know that had we not been uh, doing local contracting and procurement, uh, they might not be around. And so we were able to get those really great financial opportunities and uh, employ a lot of local people as well as uh, do some local investment. 
So we came in, I think, just uh, around $900 million. And what that gets us is another 50 years of water supply through the year 2050 and beyond. And that should not only supply our eastern growth, but it also creates a really necessary redundancy. That western water we get from the Colorado River comes essentially through two pipes that are parallel. And a couple of years ago, a giant rock from a rock slide fell on one of them and punctured it. And so things like that can happen. And of course, we have a lot of local water on supply for, for issues like that. But you never know what's next. And so by building in system redundancy, if we have to take down some of these systems, which like that valve we found downtown, many of these are well over 100 years old. These pipes have been maintained, but there are conditions of replacement that are required in the future. So SDS gives us an ability to bring in that water. And that is different water. Uh, Some of that has been used. Some of it is of different quality, and it's definitely of a different pH, and the TDS is different. So what we have done is brought that water up through a series of pump stations. Pueblo is quite a bit lower than we are. So there's a cost difference on the unit of water that SDS provides. And then we have to blend that water so that we can get that best quality available. Yeah, the water quality is not quite the same coming out of the Arkansas as it is up north. I've, I've noticed that, but, yeah. but it is what it is. But it's still good, good quality water. So if you look at in terms of the drought, what, what, what are the... so. You've created stages of drought, so what, what are the different stages that you have? And then tell me where car washing falls in and where you think car washing can help in a drought situation. So the first stage is just an awareness. You could call it a stage one. These are just numbered in their uh, order of uh, danger, I guess you could call it, or concern. And so one is going to be... Um, voluntary restrictions where we talk about, hey, we're in a drought, please be smart with your water use. We start doing a lot of messaging. Um, We ask people to pay attention to how much water they're using to make sure that they're not being excessive or wasteful, because that's that's really the most important thing. Once we start talking about water use here, we want people to know that if they're they're wasting water, they're still paying for it. And if water's being uh, running down the street, for example, off of your lawn into the sidewalk, or if it's not being used in whatever business needs you have, well, there's a great deal of energy and water that goes into that unit of water that's really not of economic value to you. So we don't really encourage water waste. We want wise water use. We want that to be an economic benefit. And so for us, we'll start talking about that and looking to help our customers pay attention to how their water is used. We do that through some really cool tools online so that they can get an idea of where they fall in their customer profile. So we do benchmarking across all sectors. And we'll say, geez, for your business, if you're a restaurant, uh, you know, we'll get some estimates on the number of plates you serve or the number of keys in your hotel, the number of guests you have. And somebody might be 50% higher than the average. And so we'll say, you know, there's some opportunities you have to save some water. And so in the drought scenario, we'll work for those high water users first and we'll talk with them about using water more wisely. As we move into the other stages, we'll talk about limitations on water use. We'll move toward a certain number of days per week and allocations of those days to certain addresses. We might talk about limitations on outdoor water uses that are really unnecessary, things like spraying down your driveway, spraying down your house. And so we'll go into more visible water wasters, which I know people have a great deal of concern about in this industry, is there's a perception that washing your car can be a luxury and that it might be more inefficient than doing it at home. So we'll start to talk about messaging the right way to use these waters to get these essential services, but still do it in a very cost-effective and stewardly-minded manner. Yeah, yeah. So car washing falls at what point? So when, so it would, the, 
just to make sure there's four stages? I believe we're four. Uh, okay. I haven't looked at our ordinance. Luckily, we've had some very uh, wet years, and, and so that takes the pressure off all of us and our industry partners. But I believe that we, we move into uh, no outdoor car washing, I want to say, in stage three. Stage that's three. right. Correct, correct. And then stage four, car washes can still operate, but there might be some restrictions to it, or stage four is... I think in stage four, we're getting a little a little nervous and things are getting dire. And so that's when we would want to make sure that we have all of our businesses operating as effectively as possible. So that's when we might partner with our industry friends and say, hey, let's let's make sure you're using the best technology. And we know that you're paying attention to that anyway, no matter what the drought might be. But we would want to reach out to some of our other friends who might not be as up to date and ensure that they're using the most efficient amount of water that they can per use. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the How of Car Washing. And thanks to our sponsor, Focused Car Wash Solutions. Please join us next week when we release part two of David's conversation with Frank Kinder. Thank you for listening to the How of Car Washing. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofcarwashing.com and leave us a comment if you have a topic you would like discussed. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to having you next time on the How of Car Washing.